Today on Living Truth Radio, Pastor Michael Lance wraps up his study in the book of Genesis as Joseph delivers the key verse, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Genesis 50, this is what dad said. Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression, transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They said, hey, by the way, just in case you didn't know this, dad left a message for you after this happens, after he died, he wanted you to know to please forgive us of everything we did, the wrong we did to you, okay? Okay. <laughs> now, we don't know if Jacob ever came up with something like that. We don't know. There's no record that Jacob ever said that. And if he would have said it, why didn't he just say it directly to Joseph? There was nothing in his behavior that would have caused fear in the brothers. He did nothing but take care of them. Yet at the same time, we know that Jacob had a brother who bore a grudge against him, and his name was Esau. And when Esau realized that he had stolen the blessing, he bore a grudge and he said, when dad dies, I'm going to get my revenge on my brother. And that went on for what, some 20 years? And so it is possible Jacob thinking about his own brother and that relationship might have said something, but we're not quite sure. But this is the message that comes to Joseph. And Joseph, when he hears it, look, I want you to see the, there's some good ownership taken Verse 17, and this is how we need to apologize to people. Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. There's no darting around it. They don't say, forgive us, we have issues. You know, we had dysfunction in the household. No, they call it transgression. They call it sin. They said, we did you wrong, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. There's some appeal to familial relationships. And Joseph's response was, he wept. Why do you think he wept after he heard that? I mean, this is conjecture, but do you think he wept because he thought to himself, haven't I proven to you guys that many years ago I had forgiven you? Do you still think I'm holding a grudge? Maybe that's what he felt. Maybe he wept because finally he heard a true um, ownership from his brothers. Maybe finally he said, these guys have finally called it what it is, sin, that they've, they wronged me. They kind of danced around it. They didn't take full ownership. And it is refreshing when someone finally says to you, you know, I did you wrong. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. And when that happens, there's an opportunity for healing and even an opportunity for tears. Had the brothers forgiven themselves? You know, maybe because they didn't go through the process of owning it and asking for forgiveness, their conscience still bothered them over these last 17 years. Had they not forgiven themselves for what they had done? There's all kinds of layers here, but here's the best way to deal with stuff. Own it, bring it into the light, ask for forgiveness, and move on. Right? If we don't do that, if we sweep things under the carpet, then they end up coming up at some point in a pile of dust. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, he had some pretty good opportunity here when they came and knelt down. He could have said, yeah, just stay there for 21 days. 21 days sounds good. Just grovel, fast, 
I'm going to give it to you now. This, this man was probably the most powerful man in the world. These last 17 years, he could have done whatever he wanted to these men. In some ways, he was more powerful than the Pharaoh, and he had not done anything to them, and he wasn't going to do anything now. Here's what Joseph says to them. He says, don't be afraid. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus said that to his apostles. Don't be afraid. Notice, am I in God's place? Joseph, who was this great world leader, said, don't be afraid, bros. I'm not God. I'm not going to be, you know, determining your fate here or meeting out punishment. I am not in God's place. I am not God. We might want to just revisit that every now and then. Because even though theologically we believe it, sometimes we want to play God in people's lives. In fact, I think sometimes we believe if we could just be God for a day, we could straighten out a lot of messes in this world. A lot of people who wear clothing that doesn't match and stuff like that. Just kidding. But we, we think, hey, you know what? If I could just do this or let me tell you, here's what you should do. And we start to play God and some of our relationships pay the price. We need to let God be God. And sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we want to ride in on the white horse and rescue everybody. That's called enabling. And we, we ride in for the rescue and we try to play God and sometimes we talked in the office several times that maybe we get in God's way by trying to rescue someone when they need to hit rock bottom or they need to hear from the Lord. It's not always easy to discern these things, is it? But Joseph said, I'm not God and I'm not gonna play God don't be afraid. I'm not in God's place. Don't be afraid. We need to treat each other with patience and humility and compassion and kindness. This is how God treats us, right? He says, as for you, this is chapter 50, verse 20, and I've suggested to you as we've moved through the book of Genesis and we're coming to a close, that this may be the theme verse of the book of Genesis. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, everything that's happened, in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Genesis 50, verse 20, New Living Translation, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many, many people. Joseph had experienced the jealousy, the hatred, the betrayal of his brothers, the cruelty and lies of a leading woman of Egypt, the forgetfulness of a man who said, I'll remember you, I'll tell the Pharaoh about you, who failed to live up to his words. All of it was evil. All of it was wrong. All of it shouldn't have been done. And we have a saying in our culture, it's all good. And I know what we're saying when we're saying it. It's all good, bro. But I have news for you. It's not all good. Some things are just downright evil. But God is so majestic in his attributes that he can take the evil that people intend and use it, exploit it for his good purposes. When someone commits an evil and God turns it together for good, it doesn't mean that they're not culpable for their evil. 
in, in, the, in the Bible, when you're looking at these things in terms of just understanding your worldview, here's what happens. Culpability remains. Judas Iscariot was culpable for his betrayal of Jesus, even though it was prophesied in the Bible. He was culpable. The predetermined plan of God was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet Pilate was culpable. The religious leadership Jesus said, those who turn me over to you have the greater sin. They had sinned against Almighty God. They were culpable. Yet God is so majestic in his ways that he can exploit even the evil intentions of men for the glory of God and for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28 is the New Testament version of Genesis 50, verse 20. And it says, God causes how many? How many? all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. Not all things are good, but God works them together for good. The Greek word in Romans 8.28 for working together is synergeo, where we get the English word synergism or synergistic. It was a buzzword in corporate America for different departments and so forth, working together for a common goal. What God does is he weaves together a tapestry from all the junk and the mire. He's so majestic in his ways that he can work it together for good. Years ago, there was an elderly minister who God gave a marvelous ability to minister to the sick and distressed of his church. He had an old bookmark and he carried it with, with him in his Bible. It was made of silk threads woven into a motto. The back of it, where the ends of the threads uh, were knotted and tied, was a hopeless tangle and mangled mess. When he visited a home in which there was some great trouble, sudden sickness, sorrow, or death, where believers were puzzled by what God was doing in their lives, he would often show them the bookmark, first presenting the side with a tangle of threads. After the befuddled parishioner examined it in vain, the pastor would turn it over. On the front side, standing out in colored threads against the white background, was the motto, God is love. So it is in this life. We live through events that seem to be tangled and meaningless, but they appear that way only because we cannot see a pattern. When we see life from God's side, his message of love and providence shines through. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. He works all things together for good. Not some, but all. That means the childhood stuff you've been through, the car you drive, or the lack thereof, <laughs> the home you live in, your furniture, or the lack thereof, <laughs> your looks, your abilities, your trials, your disappointments, your pain, your sorrows, your victories, your grief. The list is really inexhaustible. He works, how many? All things together for good to those who love him. God causes this because God is good and he works it all together for good. Now, how he does it, sometimes I look from the bottom on this planet and say, man, this is a tangled, mangled mess. But somewhere up above, the message comes through, God is love. And for me to see life through his eyes is one of my great <laughs> challenges. Every day, I ask him, God, give me your glasses. <laughs> 
I want to see 2020 spiritually. And so many things muddy my vision. So many things, you know, sometimes distract my gaze or get convoluted in my thinking. Because this world can be a messy place. It's just a messy place. You are listening to Living Truth Radio with Pastor Michael Lance. I'm Mike Massaro, and I know what you're thinking. Wait, why are you interrupting Pastor Michael's sermon? Well, I have a good reason. Since Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported program, it relies on donations from people just like you to stay on the air. And trust me, you can't always assume that someone else is going to be the one doing the donating. So if God has blessed you through our ministry, we'd encourage you to go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the donate button. Let's face it, the way the world's going these days, we need all the solid teaching we can get. So partner with us today. That's livingtruthradio.org. Now, back to Pastor Michael. But God took Joseph, and you know, Joseph didn't go through some light stuff. He went through some very difficult things. You know, Jesus, when he was getting ready to die, he said, my soul is troubled. He said, I'm gonna be betrayed he, he had a heaviness on him, and then he turned that heaviness back on his disciples and blessed them by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, Jesus was the one facing the cross, and if you think about Joseph, why is Joseph comforting his brothers? He's the one that was wronged. Why is he telling them, don't be afraid? Why is he gonna tell them, I'll take care of you? Why is he gonna appeal to this majesty of God Why should anybody do that? Why should you do that? Why should you forgive? Why should you say, oh, I believe that God's gonna work this together for good because God wants you to see life through his eyes. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you're living on a higher plane. Even when you're going through difficulty, even when you have a health crisis or a loss that you've been through, God will weave his providential hand into the situation. What is the doctrine of providence? The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate. They are ruled by God. Let me say that one more time. The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate. They are ruled by God. Now, some of you are saying, but wait a minute, Pastor Michael. You just said there was an accident on the track and You know, we could draw parallels all over the board. What about a football player carrying the ball and he gets knocked out and maybe he dies? What about a baseball player and a 98 mile an hour fastball hits him in the temple and he dies? How do you make sense of that? Here's what I would say to you. That was an accident. It was an accident. Uh, I shared this with a group. I'm not sure if I shared it with you guys recently, but David Jeremiah, pastor in San Diego, very well-known pastor, was asked by a congregant, why did you get cancer? You're a pastor. How could you get cancer? And Jeremiah said, I got cancer because I'm human. We live in a fallen world. It can be a very messy place. Accidents happen, things happen. God does not say in his divine providence, I'm gonna spare you from everything. I'm I'm not gonna allow the, the things that come at you in life to hit you or hurt you. What God does say is that I'm gonna take them and still weave them together for good. This, the ultimate sign where he did this was at the cross where he took the most evil thing that ever could have happened on the planet to his own son 
and he made it for our greatest good. That's the providence of God. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. They happen every day on this planet. But it means that God ultimately is gonna work them together for good. He lays bare his purposes, says one author, uh, of providence and the incarnation of his son. And more than that, I will add, he lays bare his purposes of providence when we see the reality of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 21, therefore, don't be afraid. Some of you need to mark that tonight. You can live Genesis 50, verse 20. You can know that even though somebody meant it for evil, God worked it together for good. Let me just say this to you. If our faith can't work in real life, then I don't know what we're doing. If our faith can't work in our marriages when we're not getting along, I don't know what we're doing. If our faith can't work when we go through a crisis or a trial, then I'm not quite sure what we're doing. Because we're not just in here to talk about theological ideas, right? We could go to a classroom and do that. We could do that anywhere. You can, you can read books for the next thousand years. I've got most of them in my library. You want to go into my library? They're all in there. And I have not read them all. People look at my library, have you read all these books? Nope. <laughs> I've read a lot of them. I've read portions of a lot of them. But these are not just concepts and ideas. This is the stuff of life. What separates you from the normal person who goes through the junk is whether or not you can see above it. And I'm not talking about the fact that you're in the middle of the crisis, you're just gonna be some strong pillar and oak. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that your faith is gonna be real when the Jacobs die and the Potiphar's wives falsely accuse you and you end up in prison and somebody tells you they'll remember you and then they don't. That's what Genesis 50, 20 is all about. But Joseph was able to do that, largely looking back, what you meant for evil. But when he was in the pit, I'm not sure he was quoting Genesis 50, verse 20, because it didn't exist yet. Amen? I know what you mean for evil, God intends for good. No, he was crying in the pit. Let me out of here. I wish I handled... Uh, I have Genesis 50, verse 20 memorized, along with Romans 8, 28, but I don't always live it. Sometimes when I'm in the pit, I just cry and whine like the rest of us, right? Oh, what are you doing? And sometimes when you resist Potiphar's wife and you're still in prison, that's when you do some whining some more and you say, God, I did the right thing. How? Could you do this to me? You know who I am, right? Oh, yeah. He knows. He knows who you are. Romans 8.28 is a marvelous verse, but be careful when you quote it. Because if you quote Romans 8.28 at the wrong time, you may get hit with a family Bible in your coconut. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's the key to timing. But I think sometimes what happens is the devil robs us of the power of the verse 
because sometimes we're afraid to make it our own. God, sometimes we quote it like this. God causes all things to work together. Right? But there's a verse that follows it. He's doing something else. He's conforming us, Romans 8, 29, into the image of his son. And his son was even perfected through suffering. Wow. On the human side, the book of Hebrews tells us that of Jesus Christ. Great lessons. And so Joseph says, don't be afraid. See if I can get my device to turn. <laughs> God causes all things together to work for good and <laughs> work to work together for good. He says, I will provide for you, don't be afraid, 21, and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's an amazing man. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, 22, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Now Joseph did live a long life. He was blessed by God. His grandpa Abraham lived to 175, his great-grandpa Abraham. His grandpa Isaac died at 180. His father Jacob lived to 147. We can see that ages do seem to reduce down, and 110 seems to be a long life at this point. So he lived 110 years, I mentioned 93 of it in Egypt. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So Joseph got to uh, experience grandchildren and it was a great blessing to him. And now we fast forward to the end of Joseph's life in the end of the book. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. He said, God will surely take care of you. Notice two statements of faith at the end of Joseph's life. And you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years. And he was embalmed and placed in a coffin. Literally here, the Hebrew is the coffin. So many believe this is a sarcophagus for the elite of Egypt. And he died and was put in the coffin. And you remember that uh, even though he requested that his bones not remain in Egypt, um, he was carried out many years later in the Exodus. It would be Moses who would carry his bones out of Egypt when God came in the Exodus, and then it would be Joshua who would finally carry his bones into the promised land because Moses did not enter the promised land, but Joshua did. And the promises were fulfilled by faith, and many of these famous characters in the Bible saw them from a distance. They saw the Passover, the first Passover from a distance. There's been a type of a second Passover, that's for us, Jesus is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. By his blood, we've been removed out of Egypt, out of the taskmaster's whip, and we've come into the promises of God. And I would suggest to you there's gonna be a third Passover. God is gonna return again. He's gonna pass over this world in judgment, and the ones who will be saved are the ones who belong to Jesus Christ. And so this book, from Genesis to Exodus, will move from the beginnings to the departure from the land of Egypt. 
And when you and I have experienced this beautiful exodus and we look forward to a final Passover or exodus from this planet. And right now we're looking at the promises, but we kind of see them sometimes from a distance. So we need to be able to tonight, hopefully just take a few moments to make Genesis 50 verse 20 our own. Maybe to stand once again freshly on Romans 8.28. And know these are promises that God has given to you and to me. It's been an amazing journey through the book of Genesis, hasn't it? God is good. He's taught us a lot of things. And I pray that you will make them your own and be able to live them out through faith. I can't help but think, Oscar, as we close the book of Genesis. Here's the question. If, if Romans 8.28 says to those who love God, and Jesus was willing to ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? That's the question, is do I? That idea gets challenged in the book of Revelation when one of the churches is told you've left, what, your first love. So I think one of the inventory uh, applications I would make in my own life right now, and I'm even doing it as we sit here, Oscar, is do I love God? Do I want to follow his purpose for my life, whatever comes? Can I be like a Joseph? Can I be a Daniel uh, in my life, in my generation? And I'll tell you what, it's much easier not to be Oscar, (laughs) frankly. It's much easier to go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing. Final thoughts? You're right. It is harder and it is easier to just let it go. Um, How is our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How much do we love him? How much are we willing to give to him? especially in consideration of all that he's done for us and how he's given us. A reconciliation to our Creator, our God, when you weigh that out, it puts things in perspective. We love because he first loved us. And so I would say to you, if you haven't known this love before, you know, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you, my friend. He loved you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is a giving God. but He's going to extend love, but you know what? There is going to be a point where you have to reciprocate love. uh, And we love in response to his love. And God's great commandment is to love him, right? And it's one of those things where it it should be a duh. Shouldn't we love our creator and our savior? We should. But we often are so self-centered and so consumed. And I'm, and I'm including myself when I say this. But I'm going to ask you, do you love God? Have you entered into a love relationship with the God who made you and the God who died for you? You can do that right now. You can do that at this moment. And if you're not sure, God forbid, if you die tonight, you would be in heaven. Make sure. Here's how you make sure you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. You say, Jesus, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Thank you for going to that cross. Thank you for bearing my shame and my sin at the cross. Thank you for taking God's wrath from me. Thank you for loving me so incredibly. I trust in you for my salvation. I believe in your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, your person, your work, and I'm going to trust you as my Savior and my King and my Lord. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at Living Truth Corona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.